Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana. And I'm Kristen. And we decided to go see another movie. Kristen, why don't you tell the listeners what we saw tonight? Well, we saw The Joker. This is arguably one of the most anticipated films of the year. Would you not agree? I totally agree. I mean, I was anticipating it more than any other film that we've seen this year. Even more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, because I've known about I mean, because it's been teased for quite some time. Well, I guess that's the first question I have for you is when did this movie come on your radar? I mean, it was probably, I want to say like six months, maybe even close to a year, really. I mean, I, I saw it on social media pop up and, you know, you have these little teasers and I just, I love Joaquin Phoenix. I think he's just, gosh, he's amazing. He puts on such a great performance in everything that he does. He is so completely involved, completely submerged in the character. And to imagine him playing the Joker was like, I, I mean, I couldn't wait for it. This one was interesting for me, the build up to this one. Of course, I make no bones about the fact that I'm, look, I respect the Marvel movies and I'm, I'm, I've suffered, been suffering comic book fatigue for a long time now. But this one to me was a little bit interesting because looking at sort of the, the pedigree behind this movie, you've got, like you said, you've got Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker. And I'm going to second everything you said. The man is an, he's an amazing actor. And I don't say that lightly. Like he's truly transformative in almost every role that he does. But I was also really intrigued by the fact that Todd Phillips was directing this movie. And for listeners who aren't familiar with who Todd Phillips is, you know, his bread and butter has always been sort of the raunchy R-rated comedy movies, Road Trip, Old School, The Hangover Movies. And the fact that this movie was in no way, shape, or form being billed as any type of comedy of any kind. Uh, I was really intrigued about it. But the real sort of deciding factor for me about wanting to see this movie is when it was announced that this was definitely going to be in har a hard R-rated film. And I said, okay, well, this, you've got my attention now. All right, so Kristen, like I always like to do at the beginning of our episodes when we're seeing the first run movies, what was your overall impression of the film? The first thing that I really noticed was how artistic it was because of the way that the colors in the background popped differently. I mean, you could tell right off the bat that this was an 80s, early 80s, late 70s setup in time. You got the sense of this dark, seedy underworld, which I, I always really think I like that. I find that to be artistic and fun. And it takes you to a place that you don't always get to see when you look at the happy, fun movies, especially something that's I'm used to the comedies from this director. So it's very different. I really loved the way that it started off so dark. And just like, you know, the Joker in all the movies where he plays this unfitting comedic role and this unfitting sense of joy and happiness, which is the clown, of course. Also, I'm completely terrified of clowns. So that's always a little bit of a, a stressor for me. So I was instantly stressed out with the clown stuff, but, but it was done so well and so artistic that I really felt comfortable with the movie and I felt like I was setting up to be a part of a, a pretty wild ride. And I'm going to agree with what you said there. This was a very authentic looking film, like the grittiness of Gotham City, which you pointed out to me. Several shots were clearly it was Chicago that where they shot some of these scenes here. The grittiness and the authenticity of this movie to me was so brilliant like it was just it like it felt like a lived in breathing world like it didn't feel like you know with what, what they can do these days with cgi and make it look you know you can present this is a world but it doesn't look good because you can still tell it's cgi like this was 
the, the, the set design on this, like the, everything about this just felt lived in and real and gritty and raw. And there's a scene in the movie where you see a billboard uh, uh, for a theater, a marquee, and it says blowout. Ironically enough, uh, having just had John Travolta on the show, I had to look that up. I was pretty sure blowout was like 80 or 81 and it was 1981. So the setting for this film is 1981. And I think that's really important for this story because if you're going to do an origin story, I mean, the Joker's been a defining character in comic book films for going on 30 years, Batman 89, that was 30 years ago. So you need to have that story take place in 1981 and the, and the authenticity of that, I thought was really, really brilliant. We have to just get right into the performance that Joaquin Phoenix gives, because that seems to be all the buzz right now is what did you think of the overall performance that Joaquin Phoenix gave in this film as the Joker. So, I mean, is it too soon to just say like, uh, I think he's the next Oscar winner for this? Yeah. I mean, he, he nailed it. The man completely transformed into the Joker. He absolutely nailed it. You see a completely different Joaquin Phoenix than I've ever seen in any other movie. The man is a genius and he completely becomes this character that is so, I mean, Dana, I mean, I felt so bad for him in the beginning. I literally, there was a point in this film where I started to tear up. It is so sad what this man goes through. And then you feel all this overwhelming sense of just, gosh, you just want to see him succeed. And I just, I felt so sorry for the guy. And then you slowly see that progression and Joaquin Phoenix portrays that in a way that is so artistically done and so subtly done. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're going down this path with this actor where he is becoming this completely different person. And it happens so, so gradually over the course of the film. And God, I mean, he, he's amazing. Dana, I, I mean, wh what are your thoughts? I mean, I think the guy was incredible. He's, I think he's incredible and in everything, but this movie is head and shoulders above any role I've ever seen him play. I've always liked to say that, and a lot of people will cite Walk the Line as one of his oh, it's my seminal. It's my favorite. One of his seminal performances, and it's an, that's an incredible performance. And you and I were discussing before we started recording that, you know, he was up against some pretty stiff competition for the Oscar. He was nominated for Best Actor. Eventually lost that award to Philip Seymour Hoffman for Capote. I mean, like I said, a lot of competition with that particular year. It was tough competition, but I, I mean, and Truman Capote, wow, he, yes, did he deserve the Oscar? Yes, he did. Did all those people that year, though, yeah. really put forth such a grander effort than, I mean, there's been some years where it's like, you know, had it been another year, I think Joaquin Phoenix would have walked away with that Oscar. And frankly, and I do think that it's too close to call. I think okay. that I, I think I love Joaquin Phoenix. You know, I think he deserved it. Well, I've, I've always been and I've stood by the the argument for me was always that I thought the best overall performance that Joaquin Phoenix has ever given was in 2012's The Master, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, ironically starring Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. But my opinion has now shifted because I'm going to agree with you. I thought that the performance that Joaquin Phoenix gave in this film was hands down the best performance that he's ever given in his career. And it was one of those situations where in the beginning you do empathize with him a little bit because there's a man who is clearly he's suffering from some severe mental illness 
And the movie really is a, it's, it's kind of a tough look at sort of mental health and how it was dealt with in 1981. And to see him sort of dive into this downward spiral into just pure madness, it was an incredible journey. Like, let's be honest. If you haven't seen the movie, we haven't gotten really into spoilers yet, and we're going to in a little bit. This is not an action heavy film. Like, this is not a Marvel film. This is not a DC extended universe film. Like, this is not a comic book film where every 10 minutes there's a big giant action set piece. This is a character study, 100%. For sure. And I, every time Joaquin was on screen, which was 99% of the movie, I couldn't get enough of him. No, me neither. And, and, and by the time we get to the end of the film, it was so satisfactory, like the ending and how just to watch his evolution into this character. It's like you walk away from it going, okay, he is the Joker and we completely understand why he is this way. You see it. I mean, you see him become that person. You see him go from that, like, I mean, like we we talk, we were just talking about, like, I mean, you see him go from this young person that has had so much trauma affect his life, so much emotional and physical abuse, where now you have a person that is, he's not well, and he's on all this medication, right? And then, like you mentioned, Dana, you really do get a little bit of an insight to how that mental health was treated in 81. And they did such a great job of keeping it so realistic. But what I want to say is this film, if I had to kind of give you a quick idea of like the origin of this movie, the origin of this film, if you had the movie Requiem for a Dream, if you had Sin City and 1989 Batman have a love child and you made the godfather of that love child, the movie Taxi Driver, that is the Joker. And that's a very, very interesting analogy and a very interesting way to look at that. Because I remember after the movie was over, I think one of the first things I said to you was, this movie has some serious parallels to Taxi Driver. Right down sort of to the beginning of the movie where instead of being at a cab stand, you know, they're at this temp agency for clowns, you know, and he, yeah. you know. And, but, In the mirror, yeah. But, and I also said to you, I don't think it's by mistake that Robert De Niro is in this film. And he plays, he's, he's got a minor role in the film, but a very important one. And I just, I, guess, I don't think that's an accident that Todd Phillips, the director, was casting him in that role because there are so many parallels to Taxi Driver. Because in Taxi Driver, you see De Niro's character slide into madness. Yes. Much, much like you see with Joaquin Phoenix. I would go much, I would go so far as to say that this is almost an homage to Taxi Driver. And that's a compliment. Like this is not a, it's not a ripoff because this movie does stand on its own 100%. But that was the parallels that I was seeing in the film. Oh, yeah. No, I agree 100% on that because you really do see that, I mean, digression and that transformance of a character from one person at the beginning. And then you have all these emotions for this character and then they become something else. And that happened in Taxi Driver and it definitely happened in The Joker. And man, was it so, I mean, it was so beautifully done. And I want to talk about the scenery. So there's some parts in The Joker, some scenes down the street with the, you know, you're in the, um, where the, you know, the houses of ill repute lie and all the things are going on and the, the perils of the night and the, you know, the whatever. You've got that going on and it's, it totally felt like a, 
a street in the movie Taxi Driver where they have that kind of same setup going on. And then, you know, like you mentioned, Dana, you know, the, the movie is filmed in Chicago. And I know that like look watching this film and seeing the streets and people think, oh, streets of Chicago. Dana, make no mistake about it. Chicago is one of the cleanest cities that I, I mean, ever. And I am from there. They don't put trash on the street. Okay. Sure. They have alleys. I mean, it's just a different setup. You know, I was just in Boston last week. Okay. And beautiful city. I loved Boston, but you know, they put their garbage on the streets. I mean, there's no alleys. This is Boston and New York is kind of set up similar. And so you see a city like Chicago and it it is, the streets are clean, but for them to take the financial district in downtown Chicago and make it look as grimy and dirty. And that's a lot of work went into that. I promise you it's a beautiful city. (laughs) We need to get into spoilers now. So we'll just say spoilers in three, two, one. The, the movie is clearly set in the Batman universe. I mean, you can't have a movie that's called The Joker without... It's Gotham the, City. It's Gotham City. And there's a couple interesting sort of subplots that are going on in this movie. And one of them is when the movie opens up, you hear like the radio and you hear about the garbage strike that's going on. This is why there's garbage piled up everywhere. And Gotham is falling to pieces. And there is a quote unquote savior who is going to clean up the city. And it's not Batman. It's Thomas Wayne. Mm-hmm. It's it's Bruce Wayne's father. I have to ask you right off the bat, the decision to make Thomas Wayne sort of an antagonist in this movie, if you will, because this the movie really does have a lot to do with sort of class warfare. And I'm wondering, in previous Batman movies, I'm looking at the Dark Knight trilogy. I'm looking at Batman Begins. Thomas Wayne is portrayed as a very, you know, noble and brilliant and and smart and successful person who's trying to do wonderful things for Gotham. In this movie, Thomas Wayne is almost the complete opposite. Well, actually, I'm so really though, he is being portrayed as exactly that, as the man that's trying to save the city. He's trying to make everything better. What we learn because we have a little bit more insight because we're seeing it from a different perspective than all those other films because those other films are showing one side, whereas the Joker is kind of, I guess, showing the other side of it. So you're seeing that he's not, maybe he's not so great seeing it from that side, you know, if you will, like you're kind of seeing the backside. So I don't think it's necessarily any, what I liked about that was that it's showing you the complete circumference of the the Gotham City world. You've seen it from Batman. You've seen it from Bruce Wayne. You know, you've seen it from that side. Now we're seeing it from where the Joker came from. And I thought that was really, really neat how they did that. Because, you know, there's always multiple sides to every story, right? So we're getting to see the whole other side happening simultaneously. Well, at the end, it all comes full circle. But I really liked how they had that showing the darker side of what other people not everybody thought he was the greatest guy in the world but his mother did oh yeah and we have to get into a little bit of that discussion one of the other plots that sort of subplots that's going through the film is joaquin phoenix's character arthur fleck lives with his mother he basically takes care of his mother and it's alluded to that she is continuously writing letters to thomas wayne asking for help and i think at first you're just getting the impression that you know, she worked, she mentions that it's mentioned that she worked with him 30 years prior. And, you know, she's just hopelessly writing letters because she needs some type of financial assistance because everything has gone to shit in Gotham. Well, that's not exactly where this entire plot goes. And again, kudos to the film because it, it, it basically makes the case that Thomas Wayne 
is Arthur's father, which, by the way, I am not a comic book expert. I don't know the source material for this story, and I'm sure listeners out there will let us know. But mind was blown when that happened in the movie. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, me too. I mean, they sort of set you up. Like, it feels like there's some hints at it kind of early on that like, you know, he's fatherless, the obsession with that. And then, you know, there's a couple different parts where it's like, oh, I don't know. She's a little bit really into him. And so I kind of had a feeling, not right away, but a little bit before you're like, okay, yeah, I kind of, I get that. It's, it felt the way that they progressed it was, it wasn't like, whoa, it was like, oh, yeah, I see it. You know, yeah. I felt like I was, I felt like while I was watching that film, I was plugged in. I was on a journey. I was going, I mean, I felt so into it. I mean, it just, it wrapped me up like no other movie that I've seen in a long time, Dana. We were discussing earlier today when I was talking to you on the phone, we were discussing about the resolution uh, when, when the mother basically tells Arthur, like, you know, Thomas Wayne is your father, you know, and he goes all the way out to the Wayne Manor and, you know, confronts confronts a, 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 a six or seven year old Bruce or eight year old Bruce Wayne. And that's a creepy, creepy scene. And it's one of those ones because we know so much about the Batman character. And we know so much about the struggles that he's going to have with the Joker character years later. Just to kind of watch that unfold, it was, it was really, really effective. But you know, he is confronted by, I'm assuming that was Alfred, the butler, because oh, yeah, he yeah. was British. He's, you know, he was, he's confronted by Alfred and Alfred even tells him right there on the spot. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. You, you, you were adopted and all that stuff. Joaquin Phoenix, the Joker character, Arthur ends up going to Arkham Asylum, gets the records, adoption papers are in there, but there's a whole scene that sort of alludes to the idea that she, the mother is making the case that no, no, I was forced into this adoption thing. Like, I actually did some research today to try to figure out, like, was this all a setup? Was Thomas Wayne the father of the Joker? And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Do you did you get you get the resolution you were looking for? Or do you think it's purposely ambiguous? I, well, it's definitely purposely ambiguous. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't think that there's a doubt in my mind that it's ambiguous. And it's perfectly ambiguous because I don't know the backstory. And I hope that someone out there does have a little more insight to it. What I will say is that I think it's a combination of the two. Yeah. I think that the, the mother is probably mentally unstable and crazy. And let's say this happened. Let's say she did have this child with Thomas Wayne or with some other man, whomever. This, you know, the joke, I mean, he's crazy. And yes, there was some child abuse that has contributed to a lot of that brain trauma that can create later problems in life. However, there's more to it, I think, than that based on what we see in that character. There's no way that that woman probably was completely stable based on what we saw in her character. So I think that that is probably true. She was committed to an asylum. But that being said, that doesn't mean that it wasn't his kid. So you just kind of don't know. It leaves it up to like, was he really adopted? Were those papers planted in there for the thing? And you just don't know. Is it a cover up? Is it not? And we may never know because I would imagine that Thomas Wayne is really good at covering his tracks, right? <laughs> and what, again, I want to reiterate what I said earlier. Like this is not a typical comic book film. I found these scenes amongst the most riveting in the film, like it, like the the wondering and the trying to figure out. But I do have to bring it back to the violence in this movie 
because this is a, what I would dub a hard R-rated film. And we're going to touch a little bit on some of the controversies surrounding the violence in the film, but I'll just ask you your, your broad opinion on the, the level of violence in the movie because it takes a little while to get going. Let me tell you, I, what I want to tell you about is where I was at, like mentally where I was in this movie. I was already committed and, and invested in this film because it was not violent in the beginning in the sense that it was blood and guts, but I thought that it was emotionally violent to watch. It was emotionally difficult to watch a film with a character that's going through such a traumatic interpersonal struggle. And one of the hardest scenes, you know, this poor man, I mean, he's laughing uncontrollably and he has to pull this card out on this on the bus and give it to this lady. And it's like, he's trying to be a functioning adult. He's trying. And the emotional violence that you feel from that, I, I was, that was probably harder to watch than the blood and guts. Although that was excruciating on an equal level to the emotional excruciation that I was going through in the beginning of the film. So I think that it even contributed further to how hard it was to watch some of that violence. You know, and we're talking about sort of the level of violence that's in this film. And and the first real sort of like moment in the movie is the subway scene where he is getting, you know, he's getting picked on by the, the uppies. And well, first of all, these, these three rich kids rich guys are they're picking on a they're drunk and they're picking on a, a sort of a woman sitting on the subway by herself and she actually looks to him she looks at Joaquin Phoenix almost like are you going to help me and he just starts laughing uncontrollably because that's that's how he it's sort his of, condition it's, yeah it's how he deals with it and he's fully dressed as a clown and one of the guys starts singing bring in the send in the clown and they start picking on him and he snaps I mean, he 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 finally just snaps, and it's it's brutal. No, it's hard. It's brutal, and it's sad. There's so many things that this man has had to overcome. Obviously, with his condition that he has, and then the fact that the mental health system has failed him, and then the fact that he doesn't really have anything going for him in the sense of stability at home, stability at work. He just got fired from his job. I mean, the world is literally crashing down on this man. And you know, the the answer is never violence like that. That's never the answer to something that happens. There's always a better way to go. There's always a higher road. There's always a more productive, beneficial to your life. I mean, because his life, let's be honest, Dana, it doesn't go in a direction that anybody ever wants to see their life go. This isn't a path that anyone wants to go down. But you watch this character snap and you watch him take it out on these people. And is it easy to say like, oh, he's finally, you know, maybe he's finally rising up and standing up for himself. But what he's doing is he's he's not, he's doing the opposite of that. He's literally forfeiting everything that he has going for him that is positive and good. So everything that we sympathized in the beginning on this, on this character, everything that was there that I genuinely thought the kindness and the beauty and the joy that he could bring to the world had just left. And it disappears in that moment. And it's not like it's a brief, like, gut reaction to being, you know, he's getting the shit kicked out of him. It's not like that. No, he shoots one, he shoots another. Then he systematically tracks down the last guy and going back and forth off the subway, on the subway. And what's really terrifying about this is he is enjoying this. 
he's finding joy for the very first time. And that's what's super terrifying. You're right. It's so sad. It's, ter- it's, so it's terrifying because it's that's Listen, what that's this what's is a per- bucked up movie and it was really hard to watch. Yeah. So I don't recommend if you feel like you have a little bit of a challenge with your mental health, don't fucking watch it because it was hard to watch. Yeah. This was a really difficult movie to watch, Dana. So one thing that I really want to mention as far as, you know, the mental health issues that were going on in 81 and here you have Joaquin Phoenix sitting down with the counselor and saying, so where am I going to get my medication now? Right. And pretty much she just looks at him and it doesn't even, you don't even get an answer. And immediately then you realize, well, he's not right. And it wasn't until that part of the film that you ever saw any sunlight. And much like Gotham City has always been dark in the dark times, this film was very dark in the beginning. You don't see the sun come out until then when he stops. And it wasn't even right then, but once you realize he's now he's off his medication and all of a sudden there's moments of sunlight. And there's these moments when he has these, you almost feel like interpersonal connections with real people that you weren't fully expecting, like the neighbor girl and mostly the neighbor girl. Uh, and they go on this date and they do whatever. And then later on, you know, it shows you that that's not really what's happening. Like he's by himself and, but the sun is out. And in that part of the movie, I thought it was beautifully done where you see that transition or rather you feel it. You kind of feel a positive for him where you really are seeing a negative as the viewer, but now it's sunny. So it's like the character's positivity and his feeling, his emotional positive is coming through in an artistic way more than an emotional or a a realistic connection because the man has now done all these horrible crimes. He's killing people and uh, you don't like him, but the light is coming through for him. We should get into sort of the controversy about this movie because it is... I mean, there there are calls right now for people to ban. They people want this movie banned from theaters because they think it's going to trigger effects in people. It's going to, you know, it's it's a roadmap, if you will, on how to handle things. Like it's Ugh. and it's a really it's let's be honest, it's a very touchy subject and it's a very sensitive subject. But I'm going to say this, and I stand by this. This is a piece of art, and you don't ban art. Period. If you don't think you can handle watching this movie, don't watch this movie. Oh, I agree. And I mean, I don't think you should ban art. Uh, 100%. I mean, you know, definitely this is a movie that is very challenging to watch if someone does have issues as far as, you know, seeking help for depression or um, thoughts that they don't know how to deal with. I mean, the, the problem and the big thing that this movie, I think shows in such a very realistic and scary and gritty way is when someone doesn't even have the ability to be accountable for themselves. If somebody has got some serious brain, I mean, they mention it multiple times in this film, the brain damage from the childhood trauma. And then the fact that there was all this childhood trauma. I mean, this is a very dark film. It's not something that was easy to watch. It wasn't easy for me to watch this movie. I mean, I I can't tell you, I think I spent half the movie with my hands up on my chest, like holding my heart, like with like, oh my gosh, just this, this movie was, there was a lot, a lot to take in and not for everyone probably, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of value in what it did represent and the way that it portrays how difficult it can be for a lot of people to get a grasp on what's going on inside their head and inside whatever's going on. I mean, how do you deal with that? I don't have the answer, Dana, and I wish I did. No. I don't. This movie's certainly controversial. 
and it's going to continue to be controversial. But I'll ask you this question. Is this a movie you want to see again? Because my answer is, I thought this movie was extraordinary, and I was all in when I saw it. But it's so heavy in some parts, and I don't mean the violence. I mean, the psychological parts of this movie are so heavy that it's not a movie that I'm like rearing to go see again anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely want to see it again eventually. Okay. But when I said like, I mean, Requiem for a Dream, Sin City, and Batman 89 have a love child and Taxi Driver is the godfather, like definitely is the combination of films that every one of those films has a difficult to watch part or whatever. Well, except for, I mean, Batman 89, I could watch a million times. I will watch that a million times. This movie pays tribute to that in one of the most awesome ways at the end. I mean, especially, and I do want to talk about that a little bit about the ending Mm -hmm. because there are some really interesting artistic factors that come into play towards the end of the film. I'm not going to watch it again this week, (laughs) but it's a film that was done so well. And, you know, Dana, I got to tell you, I was, I strapped in for the ride of this movie and was, I was very, I was present for every part of it. I went down this road and I felt a lot of different emotions go through me that I've not felt with a film maybe ever. I don't think ever. You said something to me earlier today where you said that in the third act of the film, you were able to see shades of all the different jokers. That yeah, no, and I was. And that's, so that is something I do want to talk about with the way that the, the artisticness of the paint, you know, the face paint, and they mixed it up a little bit. You know, it starts off one way and then it kind of transitions. And I was just going to say that the scene when Joaquin, when the Joker's in the police car after the incident, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, I know there's some people that will listen for listen even when we say spoilers, but I don't want to spoil the ending of the film because it's really, it's something you have to see if you haven't seen it. But when he's in the police car and just the shots, it's just very similar to when Heath Ledger is in the police car in the dark night. Absolutely. Like, there were, like, I agree with you. There were so many, like, I think winks and nods to the so- other portrayals of the Joker. There was, but I mean, for me, for, for me, the best part was the very end, yeah. which I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a part at the very end where he, he gets in a car accident at the very end. The police car, you know, crashes and he's bleeding everywhere. And they pull, so the protesters pull him out of the back of the police car and they lay him on top of the hood. And, you know, he's kind of laying in a puddle of there's fire and blood and like it's just a mess, right? They lay him down on the hood and, as that scene is happening, you're watching Thomas Wayne and his wife walk down the alley with Bruce. And that's when you see the guy with the leather jacket pull the gun out. And that scene is happening in the same time frame as the Joker is laying on the hood of that police car. What happens is you watch his parents get shot in the alley. The pearls go flying just like in Batman 89, which I thought was a beautiful tribute. And at the very same moment, you watch the lifeless Joker laying on the hood of the trunk of the police car. And all of a sudden he coughs up a little bit of blood and starts to come to life. And it's almost like he's being born as the Joker that we know now. And that scene was just so perfectly timed in the film. And then you watch him take that blood out of his mouth and wipe it up his face in a smile. And when he looks up in the sky for a flash second, I thought I I saw Jack Nicholson's 1989 Joker right there. And at the very moment that he is rising is the moment where you see the shot of, of young Bruce Wayne looking over his parents that are now dead. 
and it's the birth of both characters. Yes, it's One, the, it's and it, it's it's brilliant. So we'll it's leave, brilliant. It is leave. absolutely brilliant. So in closing, so in closing, Kristen, what did you think of the Joker? It was a emotional roller coaster that I will be riding again. I will at some point, but I am not in any rush to see it again because it really affected me when I saw it. It really I was, affected it, it me was, too. And I was, I was, this was, the, this is the first time in a long time where I was genuinely on the edge of my seat because especially with the third act, everything, everything sort of just all comes together and you kind of know what's going to happen, but at the same time, you don't know what's going to happen. One thing I want to say real quickly, my friend Jacques texted me earlier this morning and he's asked me if I've seen the movie. And I said, yes, I, I, I saw it. He texted me earlier and he asked me if I saw it. I said, yeah, I just, just came out of seeing it. And he asked me my thoughts and I shared very similar to what, what I'm talking about right now. And he goes, do you think there's going to be a sequel? And I said, I hope there isn't. I think this needs to be left alone. It's an origin story on the Joker. Let's leave it alone. Now, the movie made $100 million domestically this weekend. The powers that be at Warner Brothers are probably going to want to push, push forward with the sequel. My hope, and I'm probably not going to be correct, but my hope is let's just leave this alone. Well, I This mean, movie stands on its own. I have to say, like, I, I think that the sequel to this film is Batman 89. They already exist. The sequels to these films already exist. Yeah. And then on that note, that's perfectly said. Okay, so if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow Kristen on Twitter at Floss Hair. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. You can follow the show on Twitter at the Dana at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow us on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can check out the website www.thedanabucklershow.com, and you can email us with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. Kristen, thank you as always. Dana, thank you as always. I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate you as well. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.